thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, the passage which was read just a few moments ago, we have the testimony of the Apostle Paul. When I think of his testimony, sometimes I feel like I don't even have a testimony. How about you? But I am mistaken if I have that viewpoint. Because even though Paul's life was one of that who was a blasphemer, and he was one who was a persecutor, he was one who was a violent man, maybe none of those characteristics fit you. But we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one has to teach his children or her children how to sin because we all come by it naturally. The Bible says in the book of Romans chapter 5, sin entered the world through one man and through that sin, death. That would be Adam. We are all descended from the first man, Adam, and we all carry forward into our lives the fate that is ours and others because we are separated from God by our sin. There's good news though, isn't there? In the book of Isaiah chapter 43, 25, if you don't know that verse, I want to encourage you to begin to think about it. Think about it very often. The Puritans had a saying, preach the gospel to yourself every day. We need to go back to our roots and see the grace of God demonstrated to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Isaiah 43, 25 goes like this. God says, I, I am he who wipes out your transgressions. Now here's the kicker. This is awesome. He says, I will remember your sin no more. When we come into a right relationship with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and in the resurrection, we come to Him begging for His forgiveness, but we know that He has fully forgiven us. It's mystery of mysteries and wonders of wonders that He would do that for you and for me. We also know that He goes on to say in that same passage, it's for my name's sake that I save you. Are you aware that it was for God's sake that He saved you from your sins? And some of you don't know Him yet. And you're looking forward to that day, perhaps, when you will trust Christ alone for your salvation and He will give you the forgiveness that He has been waiting to bestow upon you, to awaken you and to help you to see you need it but also it's yours if you submit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. This passage of Scripture gives us clear indications that God's plan for us is the plan that involves our salvation. And it's not just for us, by the way. There are two main ideas that surface from this passage of Scripture, this testimony of the Apostle Paul that we're going to camp out on and we're going to listen carefully for the voice of God speaking to us as we look at this text of Scripture. The first is Christ enlists sinners into His service. There are no sinless people and Christ enlists us into His service. And let me reiterate, for His name's sake. Many in here, if not most, could quote the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. 
He restoreth my soul. Now listen, what he does, he brings righteousness into our lives for our sake. Is that what it says? He leads us in the path of righteousness for whose sake? His sake. He has very much at stake in the process of saving us from our sin. He has a plan for our lives. He wants us to fulfill our purpose. And the Bible is clear about what that purpose is. The Bible says in Isaiah 43, 7, that God created every one of us for His glory, which begs the question, how do we bring glory to the Lord? Paul writes in the book of 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, in the 31st verse, he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's precise, isn't it? But it's much broader than that, and foundationally, this is what I believe it means when God says, I have created you for my glory. Jesus is the prototypical man in the sense that God gives us him as an exemplar. We're to follow his example. And we're going to say, see in a little while that it's not just copycatting Christ. It's impossible for us to do. And the second idea in the passage in, on the heels of that Christ enlists sinners into his service is Christ enables sinners for his service. He comes to indwell us. And when he comes to indwell us, then we have the capacity to begin to behave more like him. Why? Because we have the mind of Christ. We can think the very thoughts of Christ. And it's contained in the word of God. God has sent us at the request of Jesus. Remember when Jesus was getting ready to leave this world? He's speaking to the apostles. He says, I will give you another helper just like me that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us. And lo and behold, he lives within us miracle of miracles, that he would condescend to take up residence in our lives. So let's dig in now to the first major emphasis of this passage. Jesus Christ enlists sinners into his service. He chose us, and the Bible says that he has chosen us in Christ. And he did it actually before the creation of the world. But when we look at what Jesus says about those whom he has chosen, he says this, By this is my Father glorified. Back to that very significant point. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Which raises another question. What fruit is Jesus speaking of there? Many say it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And I cannot argue with that answer. But it doesn't stop there. You know what the fruit of the Spirit represents. It represents the character of Jesus himself mediated by the Holy Spirit. What are those traits? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such thing there, things there is no law. But let's see what Jesus says in John 15, 16. He says, you did not choose me. Nobody ever chooses Jesus Christ on his or her own. The book of Romans chapter 3, beginning with about verse 10, it's just an amazing indictment on the condition of men, that we're all sinners and we really aren't in the business of seeking Him. If we start to seek Him, it's evidence. If you are seeking to know Jesus Christ and you do not yet know Him, this is very good news. You are being drawn to God through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit of God. You're on the way. I was talking to a man last week 
This man is older than I am, if you can imagine there's anyone around here older than I am. And he's going to have a birthday very soon. He's a few years older than I. And as I was talking to him, I was sharing the gospel with him. And the Lord drew him to himself this week. He prayed and received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. I am astonished every time that happens. And God gives me the opportunity to observe it. And what I do want you to know this morning is that God's glorified when you bear much fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, by all means. If you and I were to go into an apple orchard somewhere in the United States or other places in the world, when it's in full bloom and there are all kinds of things going on, the bees are cross-pollinating, and it's amazing to see the way God has arranged the creation. But if you can smell well, you can smell the scent of those blossoms. Have you ever been into a situation like that? The fragrance is awesome. But what follows the fragrance? What follows the blossom? Well, fruit. And so the fruit of the Spirit is that which catches the attention of unbelievers. And they sense there's something different about you or about me. And the difference is the work of God in us. And we emit, if you will, the perfume of God and the Holy Spirit. But if we don't come forward and after having built a relationship with people outside Christ and we share the gospel with them, I love what Sam Shoemaker, who was a great Episcopal priest back in the mid-20th century, and he said, I cannot, by being good, tell of the effective work that God did in saving me through Jesus Christ, and Jesus became the atonement for my sin. I cannot, by just being a good person, and let me back up. I'm going to say more than good because we know that there is no good in us apart from the presence of the Lord. I'm going to say I can't by abiding in Christ and being a fragrance of Christ. Paul talks about we are fragrance. Did you know that? In the book of 2 Corinthians, he talks about that. But it doesn't stop there. Paul always piggybacks on those kinds of statements by saying that we are to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Nobody ever comes to know God except through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we need to be people who are not afraid to share Jesus with other people, the gospel. And we leave the results to the Lord. We can't save anybody, but God uses us to do just that. He says in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, fruit that remains. Listen, the Lord is saying, go and bear fruit. As you go, bear fruit. Be on the lookout. Be committed. I believe the purpose of God for everyone who knows Jesus Christ is to be an agent of grace and mercy and the good news of Jesus Christ. And you don't have to be polished. You just have to be committed to the Lord. And the Holy Spirit speaks to us and He touches people right where they need to be touched. Salvation is the work of God by the grace of God and by the mercy of God. Look at verse 13 of our passage. Even though I was formerly 
a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. And that's a mouthful, and we're going to try to address all that's said in those two verses. But at this point, we need to consider the word grace. We talked about grace last week and the previous week. We perhaps will be doing that going forward. It's always appropriate to talk about the grace of God. The grace of God is God's riches at Christ's expense. The Bible says in the book of 2 Corinthians that Jesus came out of heaven and became one of us. And in so doing, here was a king of eternal things. And he divested himself of the pleasures and the comforts and the adoration of heaven in order that he could come and be one of us and understand us. So his substitutioning of his life of perfection for us would be something he would pay for all the things that are wrong in our lives and around us. Well, we know that Jesus is the one who brought grace to us. He's the epitome, the personification of grace. God's riches, Jesus brought them to us, divesting himself of those riches in this time on earth so that we could be rich in Christ. And we're not talking about monetary things or material things. We're talking about things that money can't buy. The fruit of the Spirit, for instance. Jesus says, on the night he was betrayed, he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you. Notice when Christ talks about the world's peace, he can't even bring himself to use the word peace because it's not actually peace. He's the Prince of Peace, the only one who can give that peace. And with grace comes peace. I wonder if you might be here today and your life is in an uproar internally. Someone may even have come here today in hopes that they would receive news that could help them deal constructively and not be destructed by the lack of peace. Well, you have come to hear the Word of God. God saves people by grace, through faith, and that not of works, lest anyone should boast. Grace is foundational to our salvation. And so what we know is that salvation is an act of God's grace. But also, Paul talks about mercy, doesn't he? Look up at verse 13 in the middle. Yet I was shown mercy. We're going to see the astonishing fact that God did show mercy to us. It's amazing that he would have done it considering what we were before we received the grace of God and the mercy of God. And this word mercy is a word which is common in the New Testament and Old Testament, and it's a companion concept to grace. Grace is receiving what we don't deserve. We don't deserve forgiveness. Grace is receiving what we don't deserve. But mercy is not receiving what we do deserve. What do we deserve? We deserve God's wrath, not God's grace. And the mercy of God makes that possible. Do you know, perhaps you do know, I, I would imagine many of you know that the key piece in the temple or the tabernacle before there was a permanent worship place in the history of Israel. The key piece was a piece called the Ark of the Covenant. And on the top of it, made of solid gold, covering the top, it was even considered to be a separate piece of the furniture in Holy of Holies. It was called the mercy seat. Are you familiar with that? And what would happen once a year, the high priest, the first of whom was Aaron, the older brother of Moses, in that situation, what would happen, 
the blood of a goat would be spilled and Aaron would go in by himself and he and God alone there and he would take that blood and he would pour it over the mercy seat. Overlooking the mercy seat were two heavenly beings, cherubim. And they were looking down. They were representative of God. They weren't God's image. They were just telling the people that when we take our sins to the Lord and trust in His great price He paid for us, then God sees and hears us and He gives us our forgiveness. The piece of gold where the blood was poured, the mercy seat, you might be interested, I sure was, and I was taken aback when I read it and studied it the first time many years ago, that in the Greek version of the Old Testament, which was originally written in Hebrew, when the translators came to describe the mercy seat, they called it hilasterion, which simply means the place of atonement. Jesus Christ is our propitiation, a big word, don't worry, except to understand that means he's the place where our sin was paid for, something we could never do. And when that is the case, we have mercy, grace and mercy. They're like two sides of the same coin. Salvation is an act of God's grace and a demonstration of God's mercy. Why was Paul shown mercy? I don't think if I were God, I would have been quick to pick him because he was just a scoundrel, really, by his own description of his testimony. Look at what he says in verse 13, the first part. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Does that mean that Paul was innocent of the things which he did when he sinned, when he blasphemed, when he was a violent man, when he was a man who persecuted people? No, he, he was not, not, he was not not guilty. He was guilty. But what we need to understand is he didn't understand the gospel. This man could quote the Old Testament law, all that Moses wrote. He could quote it from the first word in the book of Genesis to the last word in the book of Deuteronomy. He could quote it. Have you ever tried to read it? Some of you are having a hard time reading through it. It can be, become very difficult, can't it, to understand it? But he could quote it. He was a man who kept the law of Moses as he understood it to a T, but he was self-described here as a man who was not worth much. God did this in order to demonstrate the patience of Jesus Christ. He showed the Apostle Paul this kind of mercy. Look at verse 16. And yet for this reason I found mercy in order that in me as the foremost sinners, what that means, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience. Do you like to be around people who are very patient? And we need people who are patient because some of us just rub people the wrong way. And I'm an expert at rubbing people the wrong way. I know that, it comes to my attention quite often. But Jesus has perfect patience and he saw what no one else would have ever guessed in the Apostle Paul. He knew he didn't get it. He had a lot of knowledge about God, a lot of head knowledge. I mean, remember, he could quote the entire writings of Moses. Can any of you do that? No, I know. I hope you don't. It's going to make me feel bad. But, but 
We understand. And here's why he was ignorant. And it's true of some people in this room. And you might say, now don't go calling me names, okay? This is what the Bible says in the book of 1 Corinthians 2. It says, a natural man, which means a person who does not know Christ, a natural man cannot understand the things of God, can't understand them because he doesn't have the Spirit of God living in him or she does not have the Spirit living in him. So people, we are born sinners and the sin in our lives blinds us to the truth. But sin has another factor involved. Satan, who was the author of sin, Satan is described in the second book of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So if you have trouble understanding the gospel when you read it or understanding the things that we're talking about today, and that's not assuming that I know the best way to do the explanation. But if you don't understand the gospel and what all the big deal about it is, it's because Satan has blinded you. Today could be the day for the lifting of the blindness in your life because you see that Christ died for you when you were a sinner. And he knew that you were going to be rebellious against him. And in his perfect patience, he is waiting, waiting for you to turn your life over to him. Now let's look at these characterizations of Paul himself, of his life before becoming a follower of Christ. He was a blasphemer. That means that he was one who spoke ill of Christ. In a, I mean, he thought... Christ was a charlatan. He said the very notion that this Jewish carpenter from Galilee of all places is the Messiah, forget about it. He was not buying that one iota. He blasphemed. He blasphemed Christ, didn't he? He not only blasphemed Christ, he blasphemed the church of Christ. And remember, one of the ways in which the Holy Spirit describes the church is it's the body of Christ. And this is why when Paul was arrested by the light that blinded him and the voice came out of heaven, it was the voice of Jesus that says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, Paul wasn't in the presence of Jesus as far as he could understand. It was just a bright light. It took a while for him to get it. It was explained to him by Ananias, who was sent by Jesus to tell him what he wanted him to do. Jesus wanted him to do. He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. If we were to turn to Acts 26, 9 through 11, we have a clear description of that. I mean, he was furious. He was on a vendetta. He was wanting to wipe all these renegade Jewish people who had abandoned the faith of the fathers and instead they were embracing this man, Jesus, who declared himself to be the Messiah and he persecuted them mercilessly. And it says he was a violent aggressor. This modifies, explains what it means to be a persecutor. This word carries with it the concept that we would use to describe a bully. A bully. When he walked into a room, I'm talking about with people who were towing the line of Judaism. It probably kind of made some of them kind of shake because he was so, so violent. And they had witnessed things, some of them that he had done. In the late 1960s and early 70s, in the Soviet Union, there was a young man, his name, Sergei Kortikov. Sergei 
in his late teens, was selected and given an award for being the number one communist youth of his region. He rose within the ranks of youth in the Communist Party. In fact, he became the president of the Communist Youth League, the president of all the youth who were committed to squelching anything except communism. He had taught what he had been taught, that there is no God. He taught it many times in his lectures to students as he fulfilled his responsibility as the president of the communism or communist youth league. But he had been brainwashed to believe that Christians were the worst of Soviet criminals. Listen to what he would say over and over again. This is by his own statement himself. To do, to do, they do rather, grow and spread like a disease that will infect you before you know it. Vermin. They were, they were the scum of the earth. This would lead him and his cohorts to do things that are really hard to even conceive. They would go to places where there were baptismal services, where people who had trusted in Jesus Christ were following him publicly in baptism. And one particular instance that he reports in the book he wrote about his life, entitled The Persecutor, I might add, he said he and his cronies came in and they took people who were going to be baptized and what they did, they took them and then they put straw and dirt and rocks down their mouths so that they could not declare Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. There was one time when they, he and his gang, their thugs really, went and they raided a service. And what really confused him was, how can all these young people believe in this Jesus Christ. And they spread out and they took all the people who were in this meeting, even the ladies, they took the females. And he was assigned by himself to a young lady, Natasha, her name. And he began with the help of two others who held her down on a table began to hit her with all his might with both hands over and over. And she'd been stripped of her clothes. They did not violate her sexually, but she'd been stripped of her clothes. And they beat and they beat. He said he beat so hard and so long he could hardly raise his hand, wanting a confession of renouncing Jesus Christ. He said the blood began to surface on the area where he was hitting her. And she was so much in pain that she bit through her lower lip. And then she began to sob. And then he was exhausted. And he walked away. But he walked away wondering what would, would be so important for this lovely young lady to submit to that kind of beating rather than to renounce Christ. Well, you probably know where this story is going. That young lady was the one who told him the gospel later, and he gave his life to Jesus Christ. Sounds like Paul, doesn't it, to a great extent. No Damascus Road experience, but nevertheless, he came to know Jesus Hence the title, it's his autobiography, Persecutor. He was in trouble with the KGB. He had been associated with them in his previous assignment. And he got asylum in the United States. His story spread quickly. Congress wanted to hear the story to better understand the ways of the Communist Party in Russia and he was given the responsibility, he looked forward to it actually, to tell whatever they wanted to hear. But two days before that appointment, 
was to be met by him. He, and here's the way the papers presented it. There was a very peculiar kind of suicide that occurred. Well, we would probably say the young man didn't kill himself. He probably got killed by somebody else, and the KGB, an agent in the United States. But his story is phenomenal, and one that is very much like the Apostle Paul. Even today, people who are blasphemers, people who are violent in their aggression and are persecutors, such people come to Christ. But that's not always true, is it? Who was this letter written to? To whom was it written? Timothy. Timothy is so different from the Apostle Paul in so many ways, most ways. He was raised by his grandma and his ma, Lois and Eunice. They led him to Christ. He came up to Jesus at a young age. But he was a sinner. He was just as much out of sync with God as Paul was in the sense that the Bible says you don't have to have a rap sheet a mile long detailing your being anti-Christ. You just have to be a human being who was born in sin. And what that means is you were born with a sinful nature. And so we understand this passage of Scripture as it talks about the matter that Christ enlists sinners. But here's the other thing, really important. He enables sinners for His service. In the passage of Scripture that we looked at, look at verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because He considered me faithful, putting me into service. Who strengthened Paul for the, for the mission he got? Who was it? Jesus gave him the strength. And it's so true for you and me today. When Christ saved us, He saved us to indwell us by the Spirit so that we could be used by Him to be people who follow Him and help others come to know how to follow Him. We are people, and I'm talking about not preachers right now. I am one. And if you only knew how much and how many times I've thought, I don't want to be one. I wish I would never had been one. I've said all those things. But finally, the Lord says, well, just shut up, Mike, and do what I tell you to do. Just like Paul was put into service, and this is a bit misleading, because our thought process, when we think of servants of the Lord, preachers, so forth, we think of people like myself who are under the employment of a church like yours, and we are the guys, or the missionaries are the guys and the gals who are commissioned. We all are commissioned to be representatives of Christ. This is the message of the New Testament. And it's worth noting that the church has missed the target in this generation. But if you go back through church history, it will be over and over and over again where, and this has to do with what I would call maybe not insincere, but insecure pastor types. Because we're afraid, I'm not, I don't think too much anyway, we're afraid that if we equip the saints, that's our calling, I hope you know, in Ephesians chapter 4, to do what? The work of the ministry. My responsibility, I'm not excluded from doing anything that Christ tells us to do. But what I am excluded from is feeling like I have to do it all. And that kind of attitude has stymied the gospel of Christ. And you, if you know Jesus Christ, you are indwelled by the Spirit of God. 
and he will just as surely strengthen you as he did the Apostle Paul. You will not be as well known, perhaps. You will not be used to the level that he was used, but be sure he wants you to abide in him, which means to depend upon him for everything. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing, but through me, you can do whatever I give you to do. Wonderful. Philippians 4.13, I can do how much through he, him who strengthens me. Everything. And that's not just for athletes. I really have developed a great admiration for Brock Purdy. I'm not going to get off on this too much. I debated whether to even mention him. But if you listen to this young man, he is a man who understands what God wants all of us to do. He is in the service of Jesus Christ. Because when he's asked about his motivation and how he feels about being in the limelight as the quarterback of one of the two teams that are going to fight for the crown of Super Bowl champion. He says, it's not about me, he says. He says it in different ways, but that's what he says. It's about my Lord and about my teammates. He has the right order. But what we know, if that's true of a football player, don't you think it could be true of you in your life and where you find yourself? Regardless of what your vocation is, the Bible says in Ephesians 4, this is what it says, Paul writes, he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling by which you were called. And here again, here's a misconception, and it's criminal, I will go so far as to say, in church circles that you think I've been called and your job is to pay money to the church so that I can be a kept man. That's not it. Paul wrote those things to all the believers in Ephesus. And just as surely as I am called to be a member of the body of Christ, that's first. I'm a Christian first. And God wanted me to be a teacher of his word. But you can be a great carrier of that word. That's what we need in our church. That's what the church of Jesus Christ needs. We need the spirit of the Holy, the Holy Spirit empowering us. And this is what we see here. Christ enlists sinners. He doesn't have any other kind of people to enlist, right? And then what does he do? He empowers us. He enables us. And this passage teaches us. What does it mean to be enabled? Christ Jesus gives us strength. We could look at people like Jeremiah and Moses and even Timothy, and they were all fearful. In fact, who wouldn't be fearful if God called them to follow Him and want us to be His spokespeople that have a life that is centered in Christ and looks like what we know as the fruit of the Spirit. Christ will bathe you and me in faith and love. He talks about faith and love, which are the overflow of a person where there is abundance of grace in verse 14. Faith and love. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And love is the currency of the Christian life. Love which says, I love you no matter what. That does not mean we condone sin. No. Sin is awful. We are to help people come to know Jesus and get rid of their sin, and they can have a testimony like Paul's, in part at least. Look at 15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world. The idea of his coming in tells us he was not one who was human. He came from heaven, became one of us, retaining his divinity so that he could save us. He came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Now in the few minutes I have left, I want to share with you 
some things that I have found in my research about people of God who have been used by God. Now, Paul's calling himself the chief. He doesn't say, I was. I am the chief of sinners. Many of you have read the book, My Utmost for His Highest. Oswald Chambers, who was a missionary, Baptist missionary, Scottish Baptist missionary to Egypt. It's a powerful piece. He never wrote those things to be published. After he died, they were put into print, and many of us are grateful for that. Listen to what he says. No man knows what sin is until he is born again. What is he saying? Remember, Paul was ignorant, wasn't he? He was ignorant. He was brilliant, but he was ignorant spiritually. Keep that in mind. The evidence that I'm delivered from sin is that I know the real nature of sin in me. Sounds like Paul, doesn't it? I'm the chief of sinners. Was Paul being falsely modest when he said that? No. He was being honest. That's the way he saw himself. And he didn't go around slump-shouldered like this, you know, and, oh, I'm a sinner, and he didn't flagellate himself, you know, and all that sort of stuff. But that's, that's what his testimony is at the end of his life. Go to the 12th century. Bernard of Clairvaux, who was a great Roman Catholic priest, he said, oh, I have lived damnably and passed my life shamefully. If you read about his life, he was used by God. Why did he see that at the end of his life? Because he got closer to the Lord. If we were to go into a house this afternoon that is shuttered and has been shuttered for months, if not years, and it was also in an arid place like El Paso, and we were to walk in there, and there was a little light seeping through the cracks in the shutters, so you could see enough as your pupil in your eye adjusted to the situation, and you could see some things, but what do you want to do? You want to open up the shutters. And maybe you had been in there for a while and sort of rummaging around with a flashlight, but then when you open the shutters, what you would receive was a shock because there would be dust all over the items there, but you had accumulated dust too. We've had some construction going on in our building, and last Thursday, I was in one of our offices, and I was counseling with a man, and I left out in a hurry, came back in, and I noticed my footprints on the floor because a lot of dust was there. I didn't know it until I went back in and saw. Look, when we get closer to Jesus Christ, among other things the Bible says about him and he says about himself, I am the light of the world. It makes perfectly good sense. When you and I grow closer to Christ, it magnifies our lives as being so different. And that difference is the result of sin in our lives. But Paul didn't throw in the towel simply because that was the case, did he? No, never. He knew that this is part of the process that God uses. Here's another figure, William Carey, known as the father of modern missions, went 1793 with his wife and another person or two to India to present the gospel. He translated the Bible into 40 different dialects in the languages of the Indian people. They're tribal people and everyone. This man was incredible. His life was. And he says, I want to read it to you. At the end of his life, when he's 70 years old, he says, I am this day 70 years old, a monument of divine mercy and goodness, though on a review of my life I find much, very much, for which I ought to be humbled in the dust. My direct and positive sins are innumerable. My negligence in the Lord's work has been great. I have not promoted His cause nor sought His glory and honor as I ought. 
Notwithstanding all this, I'm spared till now and am still retained in his work. And I trust I'm received into the divine favor through him. He knew Christ. He was not given to exaggeration. That's what he sensed. I could go on and on. I've collected sayings from some of the greats of the Christian faith in this regard. But at the end of this great passage of Scripture, when Paul thinks about the grace of God and the mercy of God and his salvation, he praises the Lord, thanks the Lord. He begins this passage in verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. He thanked him for what he had done and what he continued to do for him. But then he bursts into praise in verse 17. Look at it. Now to the king eternal, God is eternal, isn't he? He's not like we are. He doesn't have a beginning. There is no end. Immortal, he will not die. Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Would you bow your head? For you today, if you do not know Jesus, I cannot help but believe that the Lord brought you here so that you could know Him. And you could admit to Him that you are a sinner. And that all the good things you have done to this point, to hopefully get right with God, are of no value. But what Christ has done for you is of ultimate value. And you are of ultimate value to Jesus. How do we know? He died for your sin so that you could be forgiven and have eternal life. Does the Father love you? Yes. He so loved us that what did He do? He gave His only Son. Amazing. Open your heart to Christ. Quit running from Him. Rather run to Him. And ask Him for forgiveness, for being a rebel in your heart by not letting Him take control of your life. He will forgive you. If you would simply pray right now, Dear Jesus, thank You for loving me. Even when I was a sinner and didn't know it, oh Lord, please wipe my sins away as You promised and come and live in me and use me to bring honor and glory to you. Oh Lord, thank you. Amen.